Good morning, everyone. March 19th, 2020, at the beginning of this great adventure. Um, I'm Asha Nayaswamy, and I will be talking to you most mornings, probably five or six mornings a week. We will see how it goes. If I uh, continue to hold the interest of enough people, I'll be continuing to talk. I had such an interesting experience yesterday. I'm in, I live in Palo Alto Mountain View in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, let's see, today is Thursday. So on uh, just after, you know, at, at 12.01 on Tuesday morning, two days ago, um, the whole Bay Area was shut down and we were uh, instructed to shelter in place. Because I'm 72, I also fall under the further restriction of, of uh, at risk, even though my health is very dynamic, nonetheless. So I've had the the pleasure of a lot of seclusion, which fortunately for a devotee is not a hardship, although the long term of this is going to be interesting. I spoke a little about using time creatively, um, so we'll see how it all works. But we are allowed, we are allowed to exercise, so I live in a quiet neighborhood and I went out walking yesterday. The day before there was almost no one on the street, but yesterday there were a number of neighbors all just sort of walking, either singly or with their dogs or in family groups, um, just moving around through the streets. And I didn't know anybody. I was off of the property that is our Ananda community. I didn't even recognize anybody. That no, I mean, no one looked familiar to me. But we all were of one mind. It was like a never in my life. Well, let me think. Perhaps after 9-11 in America, um, it's hard for me to think of another instance, and even 9-11 all the way in California, as opposed to in New York City. Uh, we were all aware of it, but it wasn't um, our, the defining reality of our lives. This is the defining reality of our lives. Everybody's life has been uh, radically interrupted by this experience, and everybody's thoughts are on one Thing, which is, you know, what's going to happen in, on the basis of all that we, all that is going on with this COVID-19 virus. I, I'm orienting us in time and space because a recording that goes on the internet could be there for a very long time. So people who may see this even years in the future, I just wanted you to have the context, the historical context of it. But just walking around the street feeling that uni unity of consciousness with everyone I met. And we, for the most part, greeted each other um, cordially. But we could all feel uh, our, 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 our unity as human beings is almost, that, that may sound like a cliche, but that's almost what it was. For the first time ever, ever, we were, we were all moving together with a common concern and a common goal. I, I thought about um, Native American Indian tribes, and of course Ananda itself is a marvelous example of that. And, and of course there have been countless times within Ananda when I felt that tremendous unity of consciousness. It goes without saying, but those are people that I know, you know, that I live with. I know their names, I know their life histories, I know their children. I know in 1987, when I first moved to Palo Alto, to um, uh, Swamiji asked us to 
take responsibility for the work here. And there was a, a period of about a year and a half when I didn't live in physical community because we didn't have one. By 19, August 1989, we, we moved on to this property. But that first year and a half, I was just in a rental house in a neighborhood, very nice neighborhood and so on. And the, the landlord had someone taking care of the property. And I remember uh, early one morning hearing uh, work going on outside one of the windows. And I stood at the window and I looked out. And there was <coughs> a man, <coughs> excuse me, there was a man working there. He seemed like a perfectly nice man. There was nothing, <coughs> there was nothing threatening or scary about him. But I didn't know him. I didn't, I didn't even know his name. I didn't know if he was married. I didn't know if he had children. I didn't know the name of his children. I didn't know what was important to him. And I have to say I was shocked because <laughs> I had lived at Ananda Village since 1971. And of course, we had guests all the time and people came through. It wasn't quite as public as it has become, but I always knew the people around me. And it was a, a, an odd feeling to have someone so close to me I mean, I'm not naive, I went grocery shopping and things like that, but in my own home, right next to me, that I didn't know. Um, of course, having lived now in the Bay Area for more than 30 years, I'm quite accustomed to being surrounded by people I don't know. That naivete has long since shifted. So, still though, walking on the street yesterday, it was very, uh, it was very deeply touching to realize that the whole world is in this together. I mean, this has never happened. The whole world is in it together. And we're not at war with each other. You see, the whole world has been in it together, but then we were at war with each other. So there was some of us trying to hurt the others of us. You know, now the threat, the threat is microscopic. And it's not, it's not any of us. Now people may still start blaming each other if you had only done it differently. And the President of the United States is doing what he can to make a human enemy because that's how politics work works in this particular time. But the people in my neighborhood are not making an enemy. The people in my neighborhood are, are we're all in this together. And you think then all of a sudden, what is God's plan here? What is he trying to create? It's, it's terrible that a, a threat to our well-being should unite us rather than the aspiration to uplift our well-being, be lovely like Ananda is, to be united in shared aspiration rather than united in shared anxiety. But perhaps the experience of unity itself will awaken people to the, the greater pleasure of unity. That's actually how spiritual growth takes place when Master uh, talks about how, the, how people ascend through the four castes. Not the castes in the social sense, but the castes as definitions of different states of consciousness. In the lowest caste, which is the Shudra caste, people act only, um, people are motivated only by the threat of punishment. And um, but being motivated by the threat of punishment, you won't get paid if you don't work. Um, you won't eat if you don't work. You know, I'm going to beat you if you don't work in its gross and most horrible form. 
but the threat of punishment causes people to work, to put out energy. And of course, we all have elements of all of these. You know, many of us would not do something unless the consequences of, would not put out the energy unless the consequences of not putting out energy were worse than the experience of putting out the energy. But what happens is, whatever first motivates you to put out energy, you then begin to realize that putting out energy is more fun than just sitting there like a tamasic lump. And so we begin to want to put out energy. You get up in the morning and you think, oh, I have all these wonderful things I can do. And then we move into the Vaisha level where we are motivated to put out energy if, if I can get something for it. Vaisha represents the merchant class, which is not really because all merchants are like this, but the merchant class, the idea is value given for value received. And so we begin to put out energy because there's something in it for me. And then, as we get more excited about all that we can get for ourselves, we gradually begin to realize, again, that it's not so much getting for myself, it's creating that's fun. It's creating, it's making things happen. And then we accidentally <laughs> begin to share what we create with others, and we realize that the satisfaction I get from doing it is not nearly as great as the, satisfa- the, the, the results the fruit of my labor that I receive is gratifying, but it's even more gratifying to see the pleasure that others get when I can give to them. A friend of mine who was a professional ballet dancer, and then that's a short career, relatively speaking, and he became a teacher. And afterwards he said to me, he said, I thought the apex of all joy was dancing. He said, but now I've realized that I get even greater satisfaction from helping others to dance. It was very touching to hear him say that. That's how we rise. And then we go to the kshatriya level where we, we deliberately do what we can for the sake of others, not for self. And the value of serving becomes greater than the value of getting. And again, it's all based on experience. Anybody can explain it to you, but you won't know it until you know it. So walking around the neighborhood yesterday, and I'm certain the others were feeling it just as I was feeling it. Oh my, how profound it is to be interconnected. How much more meaningful is this than a new pair of shoes? (laughs) It's just like, what difference does it make? Now I'm going to tell a silly cartoon that I saw. Two dogs were talking to each other, and one of them mentions, now I don't even know, Manola, Banca, something. He he mentions three, three or four very well-known brands of very expensive shoes. So he says, you know, whether it's Gucci or Calvin Klein or whatever it was, he mentions all these very expensive shoes. One dog saying to another, he said, I don't know, they all taste the same to me. (laughs) And that really... I just love the idea of the dog sampling all his mistress's shoes <laughs> to see if there's any difference. Of course, there's no difference. And this is, these, you know, these are values our society has become oh, just a little twisted. Master said the purpose of hard times, which he said Americans uh, will have half as much and will be twice as happy, much, much happier. Because we, we don't need all that. What we need is love. What we need is interconnectedness. What we need is tribe. What we need is community. So anyway, all of that, just walking around the neighborhood yesterday. 
Another interesting thing, which actually, I, I'm just, I'll just share all this because it's what I'm doing here. Um, I, I plan to go into this book, but I'll, I think I'll get there. I, and I've noticed this in seclusion before. I mean, these are just things that you all may enjoy, those of you who are more sequestered than you have been usually. I've had long periods of seclusion, uh, especially uh, over the last couple of years when I was finishing, oh, let me give it a plug, Lightbearer, which is available both in audio and in e-form off of Amazon, as well as being able to order the book. You might not have thought you had time to read a book that it takes two hands to lift, but now you have, may have a lot of time to read it. And the story of Swamiji will give us great courage at this time. So anyway, while writing this book, I had many uh, weeks, many weeks, well, it turned into many months actually in the end of seclusion. And pretty strict seclusion, I, anyway, pretty strict. So I was a lot on my own. It was very interesting. I got very deep into, into an undisturbed vibration. And I discovered a lot of truths. You know, there's a, some Brahmins and some sadhus in India will only, will never allow anyone else to cook for them. They'll only eat the food that they cook. And they only use their own utensils and they only sit on their own blanket. And you, you think all of that is kind of uh, just fundamentalist and a little weird. But when I was weeks at a time just living within an undisturbed vibration that was what I was creating myself, and I have to say, of course, it was an extraordinary uplifted time because uh, Swami was right here. So it was really the two of us, even though there was only one with a physical body. But I realized why people, why the Brahmins only eat their own food. There's just, you, you, you're taking, we're taking in all these heterogeneous vibrations all the time. And when we clear the deck a little, if there is some inner world that we've already cultivated, this, this great, great sense of calmness and peace can set in. I also discovered when I was in the seclusion, um, in, in both, I was in two different locations. Both of them, it was possible for me to walk down very quiet country roads. And also there was property that was owned, that was part of the house I was living in. In both cases I found Gradually, over time, I couldn't step off the property, or I didn't want to step off the property, except occasionally when I had to do errands. But it was like even the property itself began to have a certain vibration. And I, was, I found myself yesterday, there's a kind of loop that is our, our small neighborhood, and in normal circumstances, I cross a pedestrian bridge and go off into another neighborhood, which is equally quiet and equally lovely. I started into that neighborhood, and suddenly I felt so outside of my world that I had to just come right back across and just walk the, the loop of our street, so to speak. I wasn't sure whether that was actually uplifted. When I was in seclusion, I knew it was right, but I wasn't sure if the anxiety of the time and the enforced seclusion had shrunk my world, you know, to a... To a uh, I dare, I dare not go outside these uh, these narrow parameters. Uh, I, I I couldn't say, but it was very pronounced. Uh, I'll probably experiment a little, and just sort of see uh, whether it's an inclination that I should follow. So now, that actually brings us right. 
I'd, I'd mentioned yesterday that over the past year, I have felt need of uh, affirmations for some challenges I was facing. And I ended up uh, actually finding several prayers out of Swami's affirmations and prayers that served me. Yesterday, the one I talked about was in positive thinking. This one is in discrimination. As science judges the relative speed of any object by one constant, the speed of light, so the devotee judges the relative merit of any idea by the one constant God. Discrimination is clear only when it relates everything to the eternal absolute. Thus, while the intelligence may toy with ideas endlessly, discrimination asks, is this wisdom? Is this of God? True discrimination is not even the product of reasoning. It is soul intuition. Reasoning, even from the highest point of reference, is uncertain compared to the inspirations of superconsciousness. To discriminate clearly, meditate first. Ask God to guide your understanding. Well, that was exactly what I was, I actually, accidentally was leading up to when I was talking about my experience being in the neighborhood. The constant is God. And, I, you know, I've often thought of my experience of discovering the spiritual path and, above all, meeting Swami Kriyananda and, and suddenly having a pole star, which was him, his consciousness, and, and all the teachings I learned for him. The pole star, you can always tell whether you're on track or not because you have a fixed point. Yesterday I talked about Spy Dog, Solving Problems in Direction of God, the acronym my friend Haridas made up. And we always want to be adjusting our course in relation to the pole star. Pole star is such a beautiful way to think both of the teachings and of God and of the Guru because it's that fixed point in the entire universe. It never changes, and you can always know where you are by finding out where that pole star is. So discrimination is not intellectuality. It's not a clever reasoning. It's not weighing the pros and cons. Discrimination is finding the pole star, whatever that pole star is for us, but the ideal pole star is the pole star of the unchanging reality of God, which means of truth, of sanatana dharma, of discipleship, of, of the source of our happiness, and then measuring everything against it. You know, when I was in seclusion, and being somewhat in seclusion now, simplifying my life, you know, simplifying my diet, simplifying my habits, it, it, all, it all moves me closer to the pole star. Does being afraid to walk outside my own neighborhood um, I think that's more fear. I don't really think that's God telling me, stay on your street, but it could be. It could be. Maybe danger lurks out there that he's trying to protect me from. Or maybe it's a warning, you know, that the tension that I feel when I move outside is a warning that I can't just fall into a tiny world here. The, the affirmation for this, for discrimination, is resolutely I quell my inclinations that my mind is open to the wisdom guidance of my soul. You know, I, we have to do these, have to is not the right word, but we have been doing the affirmations from this book every week at Sunday service for th more than 30 years. So I've heard these many, many times. I've worked with this book in other ways. 
resolutely I quell my inclinations. I know Swami's a wordsmith. I'm a wordsmith, not on his level, but I'm a wordsmith too. Quell my inclinations. What an interesting choice of words. And, and so the, I've had to think a lot about the word inclination. Because inclination, I was talking yesterday about, I believe it was yesterday, subconscious and superconscious. Or, no, actually that was in my conversations with Yogananda class, which was on, I think, March 17th. But that, it was in that class about subconscious being the way we've always been, superconscious being our potential, the conscious mind being the battleground. And our inclinations are the accumulated energy of everything we've been up to this point. And that doesn't mean necessarily that that it's bad. It just means it's habit. Because everything that we do, because we ego-identify with it, stays with us and is stored in the subconscious. So we have inclinations. Um, One of the reasons that chanting is half the battle, as Master so colorfully put it, is because you find if you chant a lot that the chants will come back to you, that they get into your subconscious. If you do affirmations a lot, uh, your inclination becomes affirmative. So resolutely I quell my inclinations that my mind be open to the wisdom guidance of my soul. Now, of course, if our inclinations are positive, um, those are not inclinations that have to be quelled, but many of our inclinations are not positive because the nature of our habit is to identify with limitation. The nature of superconscious is to identify with infinity. So quelling my inclinations. So just because I feel it doesn't mean it's an inclination I want to follow. And that's one of the difficulties of uh, just following your own inner impulses is that there's lots of uh, voices in there and not all of them are superconscious. This is a whole science in itself, how to know and trust your inner guidance. It's better to move from your own inclinations than to simply be the puppet of forces outside yourself. But once you begin to try to understand who am I, what are my real needs, what are my real feelings, what are my true, what are my real values, once we uh, extricate ourselves from the superficial self that has been imposed on us, like the value of those shoes and that they're actually worth it, you know, when, and when they're just shoes. That one of the wealthiest men in the world is the man who started the duty-free shopping in the airports. You can just kind of extrapolate. And apparently, I, I don't know him personally, but I've heard he's a very eccentric bazillionaire. And uh, he just simply doesn't have the trappings of, of his wealth. And among other things, he only has one pair of shoes. And his answer was, is because I only have one pair of feet. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, how many shoes can you wear? I used to have a lot of shoes. I still have more shoes than I can wear. So everybody has a weakness. But nonetheless, once we extricate ourselves from merely externally imposed values, then we have to start discriminating even among our own inclinations as to which of those are subconsciously inspired and which of those are superconsciously. And we have to resolutely quell those inclinations that cloud our minds that make it impossible to hear the wisdom guidance of God. So I like that affirmation, but resolutely I quell my inclinations. 
I have to say, is not poetry that's ever appealed to me. I can say it, but I can't repeat it endlessly. Resolutely, I quell my inclinations. I just can't do it. So I like the prayer on this one much more. Very simple. Guide me, Lord, that in all things I know thy will. Well, that's a nice beginning, isn't it? Guide me, Lord, that in all things I know thy will. For I know that only by thy will are all things led to perfection. That's our pole star. What is perfection? He even says, led to perfection, which is to say, it's not necessarily by thy will perfect in the moment. And this is a little of what I was talking yesterday. Merely because we want it doesn't mean that God will answer our prayer. You know, every child has a very strong opinion about what it wants. And the wise mother does not give in to everything the child wants. Uh, a friend of mine who is a very resolute mother was, was raising a very strong-willed little boy. And at one point, she had given him a very clear and a very fair directive, and he was arguing with her on it. She, he was about six at the time. And she just looked at him very calmly, and she says, When I speak to you like this, have I ever changed my mind? And he was thoughtful, and he considered it for a moment, and he said, No. And then she said, And this is not going to be the time I do change my mind. And he said, Oh, <laughs> and then they went forward according to what she had said because merely because he wanted it did not mean that it was going to lead to perfection. So being children of Divine Mother is a really wonderful way for us to put ourselves in relationship to God. We can express ourselves. We have no fear in saying we have, we sh we have no reason to fear that Divine Mother doesn't want to know what we think. We have no reason to fear uh, uh, expressing ourselves, even expressing ourselves with great emotion and great passion. But there has to be behind this, this realization that, but I'm a child, and this is mother, and mother knows. So, guide me, Lord, that in all things I know thy will, for I know that only by thy will are all things led to perfection. And of course, that's where we're trying to go. Not perfection of this world. Unfortunately, an early Dwapara on planet Earth, ah, perfection of this world is not likely. Very often I have to say to myself, well, what did you expect incarnating an early Dwapara on planet Earth? You know, if it was your karma to be in a higher age on a more harmonious planet that didn't have to go through all of this, uh, then that's what you would have done. But this was the karmically appropriate place for you to come. And if you think that early Dwapara in the material world is going to all work itself out in harmony with human preference, um, you're unfortunately deeply misguided. Perfection is possible, but it's not perfection of the material world. Material world, actually, it's very interesting. There was a, a, a formula that was expressed once that I've always really enjoyed because it, it helps so much. It's like, as, as each planet goes through the ascending and descending cycles of the Yugas, there's another wonderful book, which I don't think I can hold up a copy. It's called The Yugas. It's written by Joseph Selby and David Steinmetz. 
If you haven't read it, absolutely read it now. It's a wonderful book, and it puts so much of what's going on in the world into perspective. The Yugas, it's called. You can get it from Crystal Clarity and probably from wherever books are sold. In any case, when you're going through the ascending and descending cycles of the Yugas, every, every, there will be a balance between light and darkness, between good and evil, between delusion and wisdom. And that balance will always have to be maintained. There's a, a you know, everything is a, is a perfect whole, you might say. But within that whole, the forces can shift. And so the balance always has to be maintained. And when a planet is in early Dwapara, the balance of light and dark is what it is. So there will be a certain amount of light. And fortunately, we're ascending. So that amount of light is increasing. But that doesn't mean that the darkness will disappear. So discrimination is always required. And it's, it's a, an analogy for our own inner life. Until we are led to the perfection of perfect love and perfect bliss in divine realization, we'll always be within ourselves having to discriminate between that which is actually taking us to light and that which is the shadow. So, amusing as I find the words, resolutely I quell my own inclinations so that my mind is open to the wisdom guidance of my soul. This is where we are. This is where we've always been. And this is where, despite whatever challenges it may bring, this is where God wants us, and therefore this is where we want to be. God bless you.